This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention, I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash startalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash startalk today. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and today we're going to do cosmic queries with my co-host, Nagin Farsad. Nagin, welcome back to Star Talk. Oh my God. Hello. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. H- hello. So you 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 you're getting around. This first you had this book. What is it? How to make white people laugh? What was the name of that book? It correct. It was it's called How to Make White People Laugh. I remembered it. That's right. <laughs> That's because you technically are not a white person. You're something else. Yes, I'm just like this uh Bag of ethnic is what I like to call myself. Bag o ethnicity. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you're born I'm, where? I'm, a, I'm one of the one of these nice Iranian American Muslims. Okay, and talking about white people. Okay. Yeah, that's what. <laughs> looking at America and figuring it out. Yeah. That, no, don't even try because we can't even figure it out. I don't know. Um, and also, you are a host of. Wait, let me let me remember. Uh, Fake the Nation? Oh, my gosh. Neil, I'm your memory is two. so good I'm right now. Someone's taking their vitamins. <laughs> yeah. It's Fake the Nation, a political comedy podcast, which you have also been on. I have been on it, and it's on uh, Sirius XM, if memory serves. Uh, we actually just moved over to HeadGum, but we think very fondly of those serious days. Yes. Okay. Very good. And I enjoyed my time on that, and I just know that I haven't gotten a second invitation. That's all. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's okay. I'll, you know, I'll deal with it. It's a very exclusive club, Neil, <laughs> and we'll get to you when we get to you. <laughs> Today, we have, for Cosmic Queries, uh, one of my colleagues. And I love it when we have one of my colleagues because whatever astronomy I know, we're bringing them in because they know more of whatever it is we're talking about. <laughs> so <laughs> they're, they're like they're boosters for anything I could possibly do <laughs> in the show. And this is Aomawa Shields. And I and I please help me pronounce your first name, Aomawa. That's it, Aomawa. I get it. I get a, a, a B plus at least for that. <laughs> Aomawa, it's, it's been a delight. Uh, we haven't I haven't seen you in in almost fifteen years. Uh, great to have you on the program, and to learn that over that time you've become an expert in the search for exoplanets and the possible signatures of life. This is really hot stuff. And anytime there's any progress in that field, I am glued to the re- research papers just to, to figure out where you guys are coming from, where you are, and where you're going. And we've got a Cosmic Queries focused on that. So I think we're all in. 
on you there. So just let me get get a little bit of your background here. You're an associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at UC Irvine. Very cool. Beautiful campus there, by the way. And uh, you're specializing in Earth-sized planets orbiting low-mass stars. I think low-mass stars are like very popular in the galaxy, right? Sure. <laughs> They're more, uh, more low-mass stars than any other kind of star, so you're, you're hedging your bets there, right? Mm-hmm. Wait, so if low-mass stars were on TikTok, would they be the viral sensation? It's <laughs> 70%. 70% okay. of all stars. Okay. There you go. Okay. Now I understand. <laughs> that's how that's how they roll. And <laughs> we will add to that the fact that before she went on to get her PhD in astronomy, she got a master's in fine arts in acting. 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 <laughs> and so well, how do you combine acting and modern <laughs> astrophysics? You can use that theater background to help communicate science. And, and this is what she's been doing. And you've got a website here. It's called risingstargirls.org. I love it. Uh, it's promoting sort of uh, interest in science among girls of all colors and all uh, all stripes. Uh, girls have been sort of un- uh, underrepresented over the decades, uh, not only in astronomy, but all sciences. And so this is, this is wonderful. And it's great to have you here. Aomoa. Thank you so much, Neil, for having me here. Um, it's really a, an honor, and I'm, I'm excited to to hear the cosmic queries and to talk about my background. Yeah, and and I and I'll, I'll I'll dip in to see how your background can inform or enhance what we know or what edu- education uh, steps you've taken over your career. Because I'm very much interested in that. Uh, I, I'm I'm a big fan of the arts, uh, all, capital A. So uh, you know, the, the painting, sculpting. Performing, writing, and to have notice, you... notice he did not say comedy. Just no, no. To point that out. <laughs> you need a really capital A for arts. If I'm going to include comedy, <laughs> so oh, how how have your how has your website worked? What how does it work uh, mechanically? That someone logs in and then they see material there, and and, and take me through a a an encounter that a girl might have with your website? Yes. So the Rising Star Girls is a program that I put together. It's been about six years now since it was officially a thing. Um, I had started back in grad school um, doing outreach to middle school girls of color, and I would always have some kind of interactive component. I would bring them to the planetarium at the University of Washington, where I was a, a PhD student. And I show them a planetarium show, and then we might do some kind of a, a project together, like making their own little planispheres, uh, star charts that they could take with them. And sometimes I would do a theater game with them, and I found that they really enjoyed that. And I think part of that was they they knew they couldn't get it wrong. Um, middle school is that age where girls start to get quiet. They start to raise their hands less often. They that's where you more, lose them. That's right. That middle right. school. Be, oh my gosh. Yeah, they become more focused on on their appearance and less focused on how they think and feel about the world. And so that's the crucial age. Um, that's what the literature says. And and then of course, girls of color, they're in jeopardy because on top of the the, the age group issue, um, they're also young women of color and. Um, there's just not any role models or not many in STEM for them. And so um, I thought, you know, how can I put my theater background that I had um, together with the astronomy background and help these girls realize that there is so much more to them than meets the eye um, and that, that what they think and feel about the world and the universe is actually not just important, but critical to their involvement in learning about the universe. We didn't just want to pummel them with facts. They would have to regurgitate in class. We actually wanted to um, help them to feel connected to the universe and to that star or that galaxy or that planet they were learning about in hopes that if they felt connected, for example, like by writing a poem about that planet or that star or um, drawing a picture about an exoplanet that could actually exist, making up a name for it, making decisions about whether it actually 
had life or not, um, that they could look up in the sky and say, that's my star. That's my galaxy. I wrote a poem about it. I you know, to take actual ownership of what they were learning and that that and hopes that that would once they and, you know, hopefully continue on in astronomy, that they would feel that connection and that that connection would stay put once the heavy math came in. Um, so that's been well known. If you name something, it becomes a little more personal. And I, uh, I'm omnivorous. And so uh, when I buy a lobster and I'm about to cook it, I try to name it first just so that I feel a little more deeply for it when I plunge it headfirst into the boiling water. Uh, so, so, but this is exactly that, what I'm, I'm talking about. This is actually so you it's the same thing. It's, it's the right. same thing. Yeah. I, I, I was just thinking about that like exact that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, NASA, of course, names all their rovers, and, and there's a participatory dimension to that that I think yes. goes very far. In, the, in educational circles. But but wait a minute. If you thought of, I read a little on your bio, you thought of making acting a career. But I did. forces I, I, of the universe. I actually kind of, sort of did for a while. I mean, Descended I, I upon I, you. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> what pulled you back? Yeah, I mean, I always had a day job. Um, I had, you know, I had started a PhD program right out of undergrad. Um and I sort of did that because that's what you did. And I didn't really, it wasn't really a conscious choice. Um, that PhD program was in astrophysics and I had started it, did one year, but I was incredibly divided. I, I, um, I, people would talk about what movie they'd gone to see or the Oscars that were coming up. And I was, oh, you know, I, I would perk up then. And, um, <laughs> but like the problem sets and the, you know, I was just, I, I wasn't, I wasn't focused and weren't feeling it. Weren't feeling it. Yeah. So, and I didn't, I looked around and, you know, I did have an African-American man who was my advisor. So there, I wasn't the only, the only person of color in the department, but I was the only student of color, the only woman of color. And I didn't see a lot of astronomers around who not only looked like I did, but sort of acted like I did. Like I had this thing where I really liked wearing makeup. I liked fashion magazines. I liked um, to wear nice clothes. I, I dressed pretty fashionably and I didn't really see that as much of a... <laughs> yes, the opposite, really. <laughs> Just the opposite. I didn't really care about that. I'm thinking it's um, kind of the opposite. <laughs> so so there were all of these things like, and and yeah, I... So Aomua, what yes. you did was you, you, you had a little checklist of all the things to make sure you didn't belong. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And I was looking. I was looking. I'm I was picturing looking for, you. I'm picturing like a devil's devil wears Prada astrophysics oh, edition. Yes. Oh yeah. Right? There you go. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was always like I was building a case from the moment I got there, and everything was like, yes. Oh yeah. Check. 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 These are the these are the reasons why I shouldn't be here. And when the opportunity presented itself in the form of a stodgy white old male professor who said, consider other career options. I, I took him up on it. Um, and it wasn't. Wait, so just to be clear, it's not that you intentionally did these things to be different. It's that these were part of who you were and that identity did not have receptors in the environment where you were to get your PhD. And so that mismatch then sent you to an off ramp. Is that a fair way to characterize it? think that's fairly accurate. I mean, I, I can't blame it all on the outside forces. There was a lot going on internally that I take responsibility for. I think if I had known, really, really known the way I did 11 years later, what I wanted to do, there's nothing that would have stopped me from doing it. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know that then. And I was very sort of um, on the edge of a precipice. Anything could have, anything could have tossed me over. And so I ended up going in the other direction and wait, wait. so um, okay so you're so you took this off ramp and now you're a professional actor for a bit first well, me, but first I guess, had to go to school mm -hmm. and let me guess your parents love the idea of you going into acting <laughs> <laughs> well here's here's the odd thing about it they're both performers they're both they're both oh, performers and, and have been okay. their entire lives so but the but the answer is still yes they were like oh god <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> they didn't want that life for me. They were very excited about me having what they considered a much more dependable career as a scientist. Although it's certainly, as everyone who's a scientist knows, it's hard to get a job in science after you get your PhD. Um, those but, jobs, but plus, if, I, if memory right. serves, you also got romantically involved with an actor. I know. So this and there is was like no double. Going back. But they were like, I think, it, I think they loved the idea of being able to say, even though they were performer, performer, having a daughter that could say he was an astrophysicist was, was pretty awesome. And so they, they gave him street of, cred at the parties. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Yeah. But I burst that bubble and was like, I'm going back into the family business, so to speak. And I think that they were certainly fearful, you know, how is she going to make a living and but they wanted me to be happy above all else. And so they've supported that. And yeah, I, I, I sort of, during that first year in that PhD program, I applied on the DL to MFA acting programs. I had done that during senior year undergrad. But on the DL is on the down low. On the down low. Excuse me. Okay. <laughs> Just have get, get the lingo. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> but, and so I had applied to acting grad schools actually along with astrophysics grad schools during um, my last year at MIT uh, in undergrad, but I hadn't got, I, I went for the fences with those. I applied to Yale, uh, the Globe at UC San Diego and um, NYU. To so famous acting up. places. Yes. 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 And I hadn't gotten into those and I was like, but I did get into astrophysics grad school. So I, I went. So when the second time around, I when I was like, I'm going to apply again, I sort of spread the net more widely, and I rode these sort of secret buses to Chicago from Madison, Wisconsin. On the DL. On the DL. <laughs> <laughs> and um, applied and got into uh, the MFA program at UCLA and decided to defer from my PhD astrophysics program at Wisconsin-Madison, and I moved out to LA and, and started acting school there. And I mean, I had Can like, I just say, it's just, yeah. you also seem like, I mean, what it sounds like so far is that you've been to a crap ton of school. <laughs> is that an accurate I'm collecting assessment? degrees. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So now it's like there's a PhD, there's an MFA, and, and I think you do the terminal degree. So you don't put the, right, the uh, right, SCB right. out there. But, yes. Okay, but before we take a break, I just want to know, was it, the North Star that called you back? Uh, what, what, what cosmic force said, uh-uh? Or, or was, was it, come back to us? <laughs> we want you. Was it oh the God. whisper of the wind through the trees in the, in, the, in the moonless, cloudless night as the universe poured from the sky back into your veins? It was smog. smog. What? <laughs> <laughs> so had, you know, I, I handed you a poetic thing. You could have said, "Yeah, that was it," and we could have moved on. <laughs> Being able, I'm driving through the streets of LA to, you know, odd audition after audition in these like cold fluorescent lit, fluorescently lit rooms, casting rooms, and and having my like day job at working for a cultural nonprofit and and. Every once in a while, my eyes like crane up through the windshield and I try to see through, through the smog, through the clouds. And sometimes I'm able to see a couple stars and sometimes nothing. But like when I was able to see a couple stars, it sort of like shot me back in my seat. Like, oh, that, that was another life. And then I pretend I hadn't seen it and just get back to like driving in gridlock and you know, trying to get to my job and put my flyers for different cultural programs around the city. And, but I kept, that kept happening. And I thought, someone asked me, a friend asked me, like, did you miss astronomy? Because you could probably get a better paying day job doing that than your little cultural arts nonprofit or your temp jobs. I once pulled staples out of paper for a year and a half for a, uh, a music publishing company that had to have all of their contracts scanned. <laughs> they had to have them all scanned. So they had, they hired three temps to sit in a room and pull staples out of the contract. You can't scan documents that are stapled together. Yeah. You just can't. Yeah, yeah you just yeah. can't. 
That's great. You know, I just want to say, as a, a still a, a comedian and actor, I still go to auditions, and sometimes I look up into the sky, and then I think to myself, like I could really eat a burger right now. So very similar. <laughs> That's a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> and but I still like the fact that you you had applied to uh, pre, premier acting schools. And they rejected you, so I guess I'll have to go to astrophysics graduate school. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> it reminds me, there's a Gary Larson comic where Plenty. Einstein was playing basketball, right? And the caption is, um, uh, Albert Einstein was going to be a star basketball player until an ankle injury turned him to physics. <laughs> and then he became oh. a physicist. <laughs> oh, my God. We got to take a quick break, but when we come back, more with Aomawa Shields and her story the story of her life, and we're going to bring in some cosmic queries that tap her expertise on planets around other stars and the possibility of life on Star Trek. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Hey, remember when we did that show about the science of the golf swing? Well, let's take that to the next level. And that's because PXG has developed the Black Ops driver so golfers don't have to sacrifice distance for forgiveness. And the science proves it. PXG Black Ops driver is a breakthrough in driver technology. It's a complete and total victory in golf club engineering, unlike anything you've ever seen before. Black Ops drivers are adjustable to deliver a combined MOI of 10,000 plus for unreal forgiveness. Now that's ridiculously high. The higher the MOI, the more forgiving the club will play. So you don't have to square the ball perfectly for it to go straight and get distance. Add PXG's new advanced material face technology and you get incredible ball speed that pushes the distance to the absolute limits. More forgiveness, more distance, no sacrifices. PXG Black Ops Driver. Hit your tee shot straighter and farther. The proof is in the science. Learn more and get free shipping on all equipment. Go to pxg.com slash startalk and use code startalk at checkout. That's pxg.com slash startalk. Use code startalk for free shipping on all equipment. pxg.com slash startalk, code startalk. I'm Joel Cherico, and I make pottery. You can see my pottery on my website, CosmicMugs.com. Cosmic Mugs, art that lets you taste the universe every day. And I support Star Talk on Patreon. This is Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Hey, 
We're back. Star Talk, Cosmic Queries. I got my co-host, Nagin Frasad. Always good to have you here, Nagin. Oh, so happy to be here. Yeah, and we have with us Aomoa Shields, a colleague of mine at University of California, Irvine, and she specializes in planets orbiting stars in the search for life. And to me, that's the hottest topic in all of science, not just within astrophysics. And uh, Nagin, you've collected uh, cosmic queries for her. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and I'm here to either just not say anything, or because <laughs> this is all for you. Uh, but if uh, if if there's something I think I can contribute, I, I will. But probably not. So uh, let's jump right in. Um, well, we um, actually, before we get into some of the more sciencey questions, Jiraj Petrovic on Patreon um, just asked, uh, he he wants to know, he talked about Alan Alda dedicating a lot of time and money and effort into educating scientists about how to communicate with the general public and asked of you, how has your acting uh, training helped you communicate with your students and with the general public about your research and discoveries? And has it helped any way in getting funding for your research? Mm, I love that question. Um, thank you for asking it. You know, when I first came back to grad school, so the second time around, I had, it had been 11 years between my PhD program in astrophysics, the first one, and the second one, which I started in the fall of 2009. And I had my MFA in acting by that time. And, you so know, you're, I had, you're actually 70 years old, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll give the name of my, my dermatologist. It's fantastic. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I had a trifecta of issues that made for like fertile soil for the imposter syndrome to take root. I had, I was an African-American female in a field dominated by white men. Just to be clear, um, the, Af- the, the imposter syndrome is where you are actually qualified to do what you're doing, but your confidence doesn't measure up to that. It, yeah. and, you, right. and you're left uh, uh, uncomfortable in that setting. Did, did I capture that right? That's right. So I've, I yeah, felt okay. like at any at any moment I was going to be found out for the fraud that I was. You know, African-American female, um, older returning students. I was 34 years old the second time around, starting a PhD program with everyone else was straight out of undergrad. So they were like 22, 23. Um, and I was a classically trained actor in an astronomy PhD program. And that last part, is why that's the connection to this question, because I thought at first that I had to sort of sweep that like unseemly foray into the humanities under the rug. People in the department were like, they thought it was really cool lunchtime talk, like, oh, you have this MFA in acting. And I was like, yeah, 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 but I'm here for astronomy. Um, I My very first journal club talk, a journal club talk is when um, for grad students, usually you present someone else's paper, so a paper that someone else has written about some astronomical phenomenon um, in like a 20-minute talk. You kind of do an overview of the paper, maybe show a few of the figures from the paper, and then take questions. And my first talk, the first one that I had to give, it was like I went completely deer in the headlights. It wasn't the presentation part. That part I was fine with. I, I was a classically trained actor. I was used to getting up in front of people and talking. But what I wasn't used to was people talking back to me, asking me questions. There's this thing in, in the theater called the fourth wall, which is an invisible <laughs> wall between all of us performing up here on stage and the audience. And nobody breaks that fourth wall unless they're invited. Um, like in some kind of call and response. So the fact that in a science talk, people can ask questions during a talk, after the talk, even before the talk. It was Wait, totally Nagin, let me just clarify here. What she's saying is people are up in your face. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, what I'm It's just not just is, sitting back. It's like, wait a minute. Is that... <laughs> what like I'm coming hearing at me is like acadi- Right. Academia, this is what it sounds like. It sounds like a comedy club on a Saturday night at 10 p.m. where you've got a lot of drunk hecklers. That's what academia is sounding like to me right now. Is that accurate? Is That's it, minus the alcohol, I think. Were you essentially being heckled by uh, astrophysicists? That's how I took it. That's how I took it. I had no, I see, and this is like, I, I came so far over the course of that five years because now what I see a science talk is, is it's a conversation. It's a discussion. 
people ask you questions because they actually care and are interested and care about what you've presented. In fact, not getting questions is worse than get than than it's so much worse because that means people probably fell asleep or they just want to get to lunch. So it's actually a and again, thing. if someone finds an error in her work. First of all, that's good. Second, you want it to happen there. <laughs> yes, for sure. So, Wait, with people who there, are actually your right. your local colleagues, right, and not that's out right. in the out in. So the, I take it there isn't a bouncer at the lecture halls <laughs> that like ejects people who are asking no. too many questions. Yeah, there's no there should one be. That, there's no there one that be. that will protect you. You know, and and it, and I and I certainly <laughs> felt it felt like a verbal assault when I was knew when I was, you know, when I didn't, when I wasn't able to see the the other side of it. And right. so I, I remember talking to a professor um, later about it. And he was like, you know, take a moment, take a breath. When someone asks a question, take a breath, let it land. And then if you have information, if you have something to contribute, say, you know, say it. If you don't say, I don't know, I can look that up and get back to you end of story like it didn't have to be the big deal that it was in my head um, right. and so now so many years after that what I can say is this my acting background absolutely does not only contribute but it it makes me such a much better scientist than I would have been without it because not only can I communicate the significance of my research results and I can do it in ways that people who are not scientists would understand without talking down to them, without assuming they know things that they may not have decided to learn yet. Um, I know how to do that because of the acting background. And I also know how to network because that's all that acting is, is like you <laughs> have to like introduce yourself at parties. Yeah. And like, I knew how to be a marketer. And as a scientist, you actually are a business person. You got to market yourself. You got to get out and shake it, so to speak. And um, to get that next job or that next you know, that, that, so wait, Neil, Neil, are you inspired at all to get an MFA in acting hearing all of this? Well, so here's what happened. I've been asked on occasion to give like cameo appearances and like, I'm actually, I'm in six, is it six, five or six feature length films in very small cameo roles playing myself or someone very uh, approximating myself. And if you look at the early ones, uh, I suck. <laughs> It was like, there's this gap between my first couple of appearances and the next time, because people said, we're not inviting him back at all. So, but but this sign of baptism, rather than a formal training, I think I've gotten better at this over the years. And I have to agree with Aomawa, it's, it is definitely infuses every aspect of how you interact with people and how you communicate, your facial expressions, your body language, your your gestures, how you're thinking about how the person is thinking about what you're saying. All that an actor has to think about when they're performing. And so, yes, I, I, I have to agree. But Omawa has, has got it, the formal training, where she can dig deep into that far deeper than any place I ever have to go uh, in my own profile. But let me add something, uh, because the, the question uh, started off mentioning Alan Alda. I don't know how many people know, but Alan Alda used to host Scientific American Presents. Uh, it it might have been Science Channel or Discovery Channel. And so he, was, he liked science, and he's always liked science. And he would walk into a lab and be just like a regular person asking blunt questions. And he noticed that scientists had a hard time figuring out how to communicate back with him. And he said he wants to change that. And so he co-founded an entire school at the State University of New York, Stony Brook on Long Island, where their, their whole purpose is to train professors and graduate students how to communicate the science that is their profession. And, uh, but, uh, Aomawa was like doing this from scratch. And so you're the OG. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love, I love his center. I've spoken with, um, with people at his center. I love the, what they're dedicated to. Um, it's very close to my heart. And it's, you know, I've, there's a course that I teach now here at UC Irvine that's communication skills for physicists and astronomers. And it's, you know, not just how to put a talk together, but how to, 
deliver that talk to a broad range of audiences. And the same thing, like Neil was saying, you have to, when you give a science talk, there's an objective, just like an actor in a scene on stage or in a movie. And it's not just say the lines. The objective might be, you know, to get the person to give me the money, to get all the way to the other side of the bridge. Like you have, in, in acting school, we learn you have to have an objective with every scene. It's the same thing as a scientist. What do I want to do in this talk? Do I want to inspire? Do I want to um, Wait, all the while, are you saying it's real when actors say, what's my motivation? That's a real thing. <laughs> it's a real thing. <laughs> Method I didn't want to believe that was a real thing, but you're telling me that's a real thing. <laughs> Meanwhile, you ask Elmoa, you ask Elmoa, what's your motivation at any point? And she's just going to say smog, you know? <laughs> That's so. right. The, that was what motivated the whole thing. <laughs> the motivation. <laughs> Let's go to get another question. Let's get it. Okay, so we have actually Zeke Majed Bradwinter and Chase Kimes from uh, Patreon all asked about terraforming. Um, and so basically the question is like, how possible is terraforming with our current technology? Do we have enough public interest to actually pursue it. I love it. What do you think? I love think? it. Go for it. And tell us what terraforming is first. Well, my understanding of terraforming is that the principle behind it is that we would change or we would be dedicated to the action of, of trying to change a planet, an existing planet's environment, atmosphere, ecosystem to be more um, uh, amenable to life as we would want it. Um, so perhaps creating an environment in the most extreme case, which I, you know, out of a, a Mars or a Venus, you might want to create an Earth. And how would you go about doing that? Um, and so that you could create a planet where life could actually survive and thrive. But the I way you began your answer there, it sounds like this is not in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's you began saying it's kind of we think it could be like maybe this is what we <laughs> might think of doing. It sounds like this is not well, around the corner. The tentativeness that you picked up in my voice is more related to my, to be honest, moral stance on the concept of terraforming than any sort of scientific. Well, are you all stance. getting Star Trek on us? Prime directive, prime directive. do not interfere. Well, with I, it's it's more of a it is more of a should we than could we question for me. Um, and there are beyond Star Trek, there actually are other scientists, Lucianne Walkowitz, who has an excellent TED talk about this, this whole um, question of let's not use Mars as a backup planet. Um, this idea of, yes, let's go explore. Let's go explore so that we have environments as backup in case we screw up the Earth too badly to be repaired. Um, and that is this is, like is this like a dog peeing on all the trees that that are out there? Is this, <laughs> is this the same thing? Well, I mean, I feel I, like I feel like this is when I buy um, a pair of pants that are like clearly two sizes too small, and I'm always like, I'll get there. You know what I mean? But I know I'm never really going to get there. I just wasted money on a pair of pants. You know, it's so, wishful thinking. But but, but right. what is the morality if the, the, this? Okay, wait. So let's unpack this. It's one thing to say, why are you making Mars a backup plan? Why don't you just tend to Earth as we should? So that's one moral posture. Another posture is uh, these other planets, they might have life of their own, and we're just taking over. But if you confirm that they don't have life of their own, what's your, what's your problem? What, you, pro you got a problem with that? <laughs> hmm, interesting question. Yeah, if, it, if the planet is sterile, then who cares if you pitch tent there? Yeah, I'd have to think more about that. Uh, there is an entire planetary protection department at places like the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, NASA's JPL, that is devoted to this, this like that question of we make sure that we don't we don't bring life with us to some place where we're looking for life and think, oh, we found life, but the life we found was the life we brought with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody sneezed on the detector. No. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and also, if we got there to make sure that, you know, that, we're, that our detection equipment is um, robust enough to be able to pick up on the life that we would imagine might be there. But here's the thing. How would we, how could we be sure that a planet 
absolutely unequivocally was completely sterile and had no life or promise of life evolving on that planet so, such that we could then shape it and mold it however we want. Oh, so you could um, just sterilize it yourself. And then <laughs> yeah, that's one way. And, you know, <laughs> actually, way. I mean, I, I have people very close to me feel, feel quite differently about this. Um, my husband and I have debates about this all the time. I think he would st- take that stance of like, yeah, if there's not life on there, why? But the thing is, life as we know it might be very different from other life, life that doesn't have water as its primary solvent. Everything on earth, everything from the tiniest microbe to the largest elephant, everything requires water. I I saw a cool comic where two aliens crashed in the desert and they're like crawling along the the dunes and they're saying, ammonia, ammonia. (laughs) Right? Right? Yeah, there could be some other, other kind of solvent that we would have no way of or had not even thought about much less thought about enough to form formulate a plan to create a detector that might be able to pick up on that um in some way or as you know spectrom spectrometer or something um so i i think it'll be very okay so you're no fun sure. you just want to fix earth you know that's not fun at all well, but, I want, uh, we- i'd like to fix earth and i'd like to explore for the sake of exploring not for the sake of changing to fit our standards or what we what we think we would need uh Nagi, we got to take another break when we come back to our third segment uh we might have to go into a, a lightning round uh so we can get more of those questions in uh you're watching or listening to star talk cosmic queries and this is all about search for life on exoplanets when we return Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Cheers to a great day and this ice-cold Corona. You know what would make this day even better? My grandma's carne asada. Or your grandma here with us, making carne asada. She does love a cold Corona. Throw in some dancing. We can watch the game. I'll drink to that. So a backyard concert with football, food, dancing, and Corona? And your grandma. Or we could keep it simple. Simple is good. Want a Corona? Thanks. Salud to the perfect day. Corona, la vida más fina. Get your Corona at ordercorona.com. Relax responsibly. Corona extra beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Hey, we'd like to give a Patreon shout out to the following Patreon patrons. Jacob Fisher, C-O-C-U-A Hufganga, and Thomas Cochran. Guys, without you, we couldn't do this show. So we are very grateful. And anyone listening who would like their very own Patreon shout out, please go to patreon.com slash startalkradio and support us. Star Talk Cosmic Prairie Edition. We're talking about exoplanets and the possibility of them harboring life with one of the world's experts on that very subject, and it's Omawa Shields. Omawa, welcome to Star Talk. And Nagin, of course, my co host, my guest co host for this. And you've got all the questions with you. But before we go into that, uh, Nagin, how do people find you online? 
Oh my gosh, you can find me at Nagin Farsad, N-E-G-I-N-F-A-R-S-A-D. And, uh, and, uh, and anything separating your first and last name? No, just right through on right, Instagram, on through. TikTok, on okay. Twitter. Uh, and oh, oh, the fun you will have uh, reading through my things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll be the judge of that. Okay. <laughs> and Aomawa. What? What? Uh, other than your website, where you're you're um, encouraging girls to rise up to their fullest potential, uh, how else might we find you on social media? Yes. Well, you can uh, find my faculty website. It just Google UCI and my name. You can put in my first name only, Aomoa, and I should. Yeah, come that's up. A good. That's, that'll find you anywhere in the world. I that's bet. right. A O M A W A. That's Aomoa. Yeah, that's all. So you can just drop your drop shields. Who needs shields? You, we have we have like Prince, Madonna, Cher. Cher. <laughs> I thought about it. Oh, <laughs> Nagin, let's start doing with That's how we'll do it with it from now okay. on. Okay. And then my Twitter handle, it. my Twitter handle is also my first name only, at Aomoa. As it should be. Okay. So Nagin, let's, let's, let's see how many of these we can knock out in this third and final segment. And by the way, I think all these questions, we're now only taking questions from Patreon. Uh, from our Patreon uh, support. So if you, want, if you want to be able to ask a question, you know, jump on in. Join okay. the Patreon. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael Main, one of your members, asks, it is my understanding that volatile magnetic fields of red dwarf stars periodically cause large star solar flares, which adversely affect planets within the star's Goldilocks zone. Is it possible for life to survive on these star-blasted worlds? Um, I didn't understand that question at all. So this is where <laughs> and I was going to say, my response is to say, take that, Omoa. <laughs> what do you think of that? Because you're studying low-mass stars, which are cool mm-hmm. and red, and mm-hmm. they, they're very susceptible to, to flares and things. Yes. So how do you get out of that one? I think we yeah. backed her into a corner, Nagin. So let's oh. see what happens. Here. I'm going to do my best. <laughs> oh, I feel it. Yeah. This is a very popular question that I get at Science Talks, which I now welcome instead of uh, fear, as we talked about before. <laughs> I love mm-hmm. I love the questions. And yes, yeah, so the one thing about these low-mass stars, these red, cool M dwarf or red dwarf stars, um, they have a lot of advantages. They're 70% of all stars. It's easier to detect planets around these stars. They live forever, like even forever, forever compared to regular stars. Um, and like what trillions I mean by of that, years. Trillions. Like so trillions. No, no red dwarf stars have ever died. That's how long their lifetimes are. Their lifetimes are longer than the current age of the universe. So no stars, no red dwarf stars have ever died. So it seems to me you could evolve some badass creatures if you were around for that long, right, on, on a planet. Yeah, so that's the other, another advantage is that they would permit long timescales for both planetary and biological evolution. Um, but when they have these long lifetimes, that means that this, like, so all stars are really active when they're young, Um and think of this as like a terrible twos phase for those who have kids. I have a daughter who's um, three and a half, and like, yeah, her terrible twos phase is still going on. <laughs> like, terrible, it became terrible threes, like, yeah. <laughs> that's right. But the the terrible twos phase for red dwarf stars can last as long as a billion years. Like that's that's some terrible twos phase, and during that time, the planets around these stars in this so-called Goldilocks zone, habitable zone, that region around a star where a planet could be not too hot or not too cold for water to stay liquid on the surface. That's what we call the Goldilocks zone. Planets in that zone could be pelted by all of this high energy radiation during this terrible twos phase. This, um, and that, that could threaten the atmospheres of these planets. It could threaten biology. We know that, for example, UV radiation is harmful to biology. That's why we wear sunscreen. Um, but think of it as like UV radiation on steroids um, for life on a planet orbiting a red dwarf star. And that could be, but I'll say that. So that could be bad for sure. And that's certainly a, one of the largest disadvantages that people have brought up for, for life orbiting. Um, on I feel a butt coming. Okay, but <laughs> but okay. if you're... We know that there's tons of life in the ocean. So you could still have life 
doing its thing and being nice and sheltered from UV radiation if it was at the bottom of the ocean or even just a couple of hundred meters below the surface. Um, and, you know, there's that terrible two space, even though it lasts as long as a billion years, it doesn't last forever. Um, and it could be that atmospheres are thick enough, for example, to withstand that radiation. And we've done some studies to show that under certain circumstances, you might not, for example, deplete an entire ozone layer by that high energy radiation pelting the atmosphere. You could still have some leftover. So it depends is the short answer to that, okay. to that question. All right. So it's not as bad as, so it is real that these are threats, but those threats don't exhaust all possible ways you could survive them. Correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right, keep it going. Nagin. All right. Charles Maloof asks, if Earth was about to be destroyed and you had to board a ship bound for another planet where you would spend the rest of your life, which destination would you choose at the ticket counter? And you should assume (laughs) there's already a habitable facility there and travel speed is a significant percentage of sea so you don't age much from the journey. (laughs) They, they got this all figured out, huh? They sure do. Okay. They sure do. So, Aomawa, what is your favorite planet? That's really what that comes down yes, to. Yes, yes, it does. Um, I have a soft spot for a planet called Kepler-62f. And I say that wistfully because this planet is 1,200 light years away. Um, and so it's very unlikely Wait, so that- you're leaving the solar system for this <laughs> des- destination. I don't, was that allowed, Nagin, in this setup? We'd have to. We'd have to. We're going to another. Oh, you! I kept thinking exoplanets, but it could, yeah, because you have exoplanets on the brain. But that's okay. We'll take it. it. Okay, I'll so take it. Could it. be. I guess it could be. Yeah, like within our solar system, like a. Yeah, it's still a good one. Well, give me give, give me both answers. So, in the solar system, what would it be? Um, well, Jupiter's moon Europa is certainly a place that everyone is excited about, and I've always loved because we're fairly certain that there is an ocean there, except the ocean is below potentially kilometers thick ice. Um, so a very, very thick ice shell on top and then and then a global wait, wait. salty oh, oh, ocean. Oh, 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 you're thinking about, you're thinking like a scientist, all right? You're thinking you go there because that'd be cool to study it. It sounds like he just said, where do you want to go to live? <laughs> yeah, where are we hanging out? Where are you, you know, going to hang out? Thank where you. are you brunching? Like, yeah. where are you doing girls weekends? <laughs> like what, you know? On another planet. Yeah. Um, I always think about that on our planet. It's funny. I, I, ever since I had a child, it's like, I don't want, I don't, I wouldn't want to leave. Like I wouldn't want to leave to go. Bring your kids with you. And then if you can survive them saying, are we there yet? You know, then it'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose Neptune because it's my daughter's favorite planet. And she she loves it because it's blue. Um, and we haven't talked about ammonia and how that does that and all that, but just because it's blue, and I think that'd be fun. Um, and I, then, I would take any moon of Saturn because then you can look up and see Saturn in the oh, night sky. Oh yeah, gorgeous, gotta gorgeous. Be, that's got to be beautiful. Yeah, so tell me more about Kepler sixty two L. Kepler sixty two F is this? Oh F. Yes, it's uh, twelve hundred light years away. It's one of a five planet system orbiting this this. K star, so a little bit, a little bit cooler than the sun, not as cool as a red dwarf star, um, and it's really, it's one of the first planets that we were able to. My team was actually able to look at how the gravitational interactions between this planet and and its siblings. So this planet is not alone in its system; it's got four other siblings that are also revolve, you know, going around Kepler sixty two, its its parent star how those interactions, how they can push and pull on each other and how that affects the climate of this planet. And that's what I study is how the the climate of exoplanets um, is determined by a myriad of factors, including how planets push and pull on each other. And so this was- Okay, so you're biased because like you studied the damn thing. I did. You you take ownership. You've already planted the flag, the (laughs) Almohawa Shields flag. That's what. Okay. Yeah, and so I'd love to be able to go and see- and test some of the theories and predictions we made um, on cool. this planet. All right, all right. Again, thinking like a scientist, how not just hanging you, out on the beach. How much would you age? I know, that's, right. that's <laughs> all I'm thinking about. How much would you age, though, going to that planet, to that exoplanet? 
Oh, I mean, it, we're assuming this question said a few percentage, few percent of the speed of light. I mean, if we if we were somehow able to obtain light speed, um, it would still take us twelve hundred years to get there, and twelve hundred years to get back. Um, so we'd wait. Wait, pretty- you wouldn't age, but we'd all be long dead, and all you everyone would have forgotten <laughs> right. about you if you come true, back to that's Earth. True, yes. So just so go and, and just don't come back, and you're you're cool, you're fine. <laughs> That's right. So, Nagin, keep them coming. Here we go. Chaz uh, Jen Carelli says, when looking for other habitable planets, do we also look for signs of other life that's not carbon-based? I know silicon-based life has been talked about, but curious of the signs of other-based life is easy to scope out. I love this question because I'm always like, are you looking for carbon and then also, like, gummy bears? And also, <laughs> like, what, I mean, what is the list of the things that you're looking for, you know? Yeah, are we, and how biased are we in, this, in, the, in these criteria? We're very biased. I mean, our our N if in scientific parlance, our N is one, meaning we have one example of a planet that we know is habitable. Earth. That's it. And so we're we're using everything we know life needs on Earth as our metric for where else to look for life, what to look for on those planets. Um, but that's and this is where the water bias comes in, right? Because we all need water. Yeah, so and you're saying, three, well, we need water, so clearly everybody else needs water. Yeah. And there's three things, there's three fundamental requirements that we've identified that life needs on Earth. And it's liquid water, it's an energy source, and in some cases that's the sun. In other cases, it might be um, just chemicals for life that's underneath at the bottom of the ocean and doesn't have access to, to sunlight. So stellar or chemical energy and some sort of environment to form complex organic molecules from like elements essential to biology, like sulfur and phosphorus and oxygen and nitrogen and carbon and hydrogen. So that environment would have to be like the right temperature and the right pressure to sustain big molecules well, to experiment and, the, and make anything complex. This is why right. water is the most critical of those three, because... A terrestrial planet by nature has some kind of energy source and the basic building blocks in some form that are needed for life. But what isn't as common is liquid water. And you can see that really in our own solar system. Um, And that's what we know all life on Earth needs is liquid water. And so we, we use that as our, you know, as our criterion. But as this question points out, it is limiting um, because there might be other ways. And there are astrobiologists and an astrobiologist is someone, it could be an astronomer, but it could also be an oceanographer. It could be a geologist. Astrobiologists are, are very interdisciplinary. They're using their primary field of expertise to address questions related to life elsewhere, to answer the question of, how, you know, are we alone um, what's the origin, evolution, distribution, and future of life in the universe? So, um, Nagin, I want to find a planet that doesn't depend on water, that it, that it, it depends on wine. That would be an interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and grapes like, are a big industry there. <laughs> no, actually, wine is mostly water, of course. So, I, I, I kid. I kid. So, Nagin, we got to go. It's serious uh, lightning round now. So, Aomawa, uh, you've got to answer questions in one word or one sentence at oh most. Oh, my gosh. Okay? Yes. Let's okay. go. Yes. Nadine, no. go. Shana Briscoe asks, is the event horizon of a black hole static or does it vary with an object's ability to produce thrust away from the singularity? Like, ba- singularity. Basically, are they all wobbly or are they perfect spheres? Um, I'm a planet person. Next. <laughs> 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 So I can address parts of that. If the black hole is rotating, the, the event horizon is not a sphere. It takes on other shapes that in some cases resemble a donut. So um, that's all. It's, it's the rotation that will alter the shape of the, of the event horizon. Otherwise, it's just going to be a perfect sphere around the singularity. Um, okay, uh, Heidi Wagemans asks, are we able to get to other habitable planets if the universe expands so fast? By the way, from the, the uh, um, Heidi is from the Netherlands. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Um, yes, the universe is expanding. Um, however, we 
especially because of recent recent times, we now have a new mission, a relatively new mission called the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. We call it TESS for short. It's the successor to NASA's Kepler mission, which stared at one patch of sky for about 10 years and just kept taking pictures looking for planets that passed in front of their host star from our viewing angle. And we actually looked, we saw little dips in the light of the star when the planet planet passed in front of those stars. So TESS is actually an all-sky survey, and it's looking at stars in the nearby solar neighborhood. So because of that, we're finding a lot more um, a lot more planets, first off, around these cool, small red stars, because they're the most uh, abundant stars in the solar neighborhood anyway. And those planets are much closer to us. They're going to be easier to follow up on, to look at with next generation telescopes, and hopefully one day to try to journey to. Okay, that wasn't a one word or a one sentence. Answer. <laughs> I couldn't like, figure out how else to do it. <laughs> also, uh, the expansion of the universe, our galaxy will hang tight for a while, even in the expanding universe. So I think yep. we're okay. And it's great to hear that we're discovering many more that are nearby, in case we're going to make that escape list. <laughs> for, <laughs> for what, Again, what, round keep, up the billionaires and we'll escape. Keep the beach destinations in mind when you're putting <laughs> together that list, you guys. Okay, let's get one more. One, one more. more. We have from Ashley Kasdorf, um, a Floridian. I've been wondering what a black hole does for the universe from a circle of life aspect. Most things on Earth are recycled. However, black holes seem to only consume. Mm. They're not, yeah, black holes aren't recycling. What's up with that? <laughs> are they are they the like the landfill of, of the sky or what? Did I is that accurate? That is so funny. I just watched. I was just watching um, Loki, the, uh, the Marvel show Loki, the other day, and there's this. Yeah, whole, Loki's Thor's brother. Thor's brother, right? yeah, the yeah, god right. of mischief. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's sort of taking a moral turn in this. I won't give it away. Um, but there's this whole notion of like what comes after, and and this creature that this void that kind of consumes all matter. And um, I mean, I think the answer, my, I guess it's my three word answer would be, I don't know. And I believe we don't know. Right. So the two, I don't knows that a scientist can utter. One of them is they don't know. And the other, I don't know is no one knows because we yes. don't have the answer yet at all, exactly. no matter who you ask. So, but I love how like basically this was a real this is really judgmental towards black holes, <laughs> you know. And we haven't I haven't heard very many uh, approaches to black holes that are like you know they just consume consume they don't care about anybody else, you know. No, I think so. Here's the issue. Here's Selfish how black, black holes win. Holes. Selfish black holes. Here's how they win the day. The reason why we recycle is because we don't want what we just use to to litter the environment. That's the only motivation to recycle, right. as in addition to whether the material is 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 renewable, right? But that, that's why if it's if it's not renewable, you get to use it again, and there you don't and you don't discard it on the on the on the, on the shoreline. A black hole. Eats it, you will never find it on anybody's shore after that. Mm. You won't find it anywhere. It's not in landfill. You're right, and again, it is its own landfill. But, yeah. but it's t- you, the smells don't come out. It's not unsightly. It's not a not-in-my-backyard thing. In fact, everyone should have a black hole in their backyard. Well, and there's a black <laughs> hole at the center of every galaxy, right? There, so maybe that's, that's it. Aomawa, here's what we do. So when we have galactic federations— that's the garbage chute for all the trash that we collect in the galaxy. I like it. Can I yes. also just say, we don't know that if in black holes there isn't like a giant Etsy shop that's selling <laughs> repurposed, repurposed repurposed from stars right. renovated cute repurposed. handbags. Right. Okay? Are you sure so you that it's a possibility. Yep. You know? <laughs> Actually, some models for the interior of black holes have them open up an entire other space-time continuum so that, in fact, things that fall through intact could emerge on the other side, separate from our universe, uh, entering a whole other universe created by the black hole itself. And I'm surprised that there's not as much science fiction that has exploited that understanding of black holes as I think should. But anyhow, guys, we got to call it quits (laughs) there. 
I, I, Omoa, this you you've been away too long, okay? And <laughs> delighted to have you. Uh, this is a very popular topic, and we, and we have a lot of interest, deep interest in this. And maybe we can get you back on and continue it, or especially when when Tess uh, is Tess. Uh, what's the status of Tess right now? Tess is flying, and they've actually found many potentially habitable planets now. So now so maybe we can get a, sort of an update on Tess. Yeah, because we didn't specifically talk about Tess in this episode, mm -hmm. but uh, Transiting Explorer Survey Telescope? Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think we'd welcome uh, just an update on what some of the findings are from that next generation of our search for exoplanets. I would so, love to come uh, back. thank you for being on Star Talk. Thank you for having me, everybody. All right. And Nagin, always good to have you. Oh my God, thanks so much for having me. I learned something today. Okay, that, that's what this is about. So, but <laughs> I you learned said that it black as though. Holes are like real jerk offs. That's what <laughs> I learned. <laughs> but, Nagin, the way you said that, so other times I did this, I didn't learn a damn thing. Uh, that, that was kind of, you copped the attitude there, admit it. <laughs> well, I, I almost really used her skills on me. I, I really, you know, I really felt like I got something. So, this has been Star Talk Cosmic Queries. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. As always, I bid you to keep looking up. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.